You're listening to the Meet the Farmers podcast with me, your host, Ben Eagle. Please remember to subscribe to the show wherever you are listening. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 229 of the Meet the Farmers podcast with me, Ben Eagle. We're back in the UK today again, and we're heading to Shropshire to the Oatley Estate, which has been in the Mannering family for 500 years. Yes, you did hear that right, listeners. My guest is Claire Mannering, who runs the 2000 acre estate with her husband, Ian. Claire and Ian rear two herds of native British cattle, shorthorns and highlands. They have a flock of sheep, North Country mule crosses and some saddleback pigs. And they're also not afraid of trying new things. And in recent years, they've launched premium meat boxes, held open garden days, market days, created a cafe and farm shop that opens once a week. Uh, They've held walk and eat events. They sound good. Um, Open farm days and worked with a local distillery to start producing uh, their own damson liqueur, sounds delicious, um, to sell in the shop, as well as working with a local chef to make ready meals using their produce. To name quite a few, and I'm sure we'll go into those today. Um, So today we're going to hear more about Claire and what it takes to run a traditional estate that has been in one family for so many generations. Claire, welcome to Meet the Farmers. Thank you for doing this. How are you doing? And Happy New Year. I think it's still okay to say that. Yes, Happy New Year to you. Thank you very much for having me on. Uh, absolutely, my pleasure. Um, so I've given uh, a brief introduction to Oakley, but I'm wondering, as someone who you, you clearly live and breathe it, how would you describe it? Because there are lots of different elements to it. Yeah, um, it's quite a special place. Um Obviously, I've I've come into this family um, yeah. just about 20 years ago. And anyone who knows North Shropshire will know the uh, Ellesmere area, which is often called the, the Lakelands of, um, of Shropshire. Um, yeah. A number of meres, so quite a bit of water, a bit of extra yeah. water at the moment yeah, so, as well. Yeah, quite we quite a lot of water, really I'm want. guessing, right now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we've got a few extra puddles. Uh, so, yes, rather wet here at the moment. Um, but for, uh, so a mixture of sort of rolling countryside um, with a uh, traditional estate, which has lost over its years, its sort of central big house, which was taken down in the late 1950s, early 60s, which sat overlooking the Mira Ellesmere. And then the estate sort of spread out from there. Um, and it's changed quite a bit in that time. We're now... Um, farming it nearly all back in hand ourselves, which is quite a difference than it would have been 25, 30 years ago. Um, there's still a number of property on the estate. Um, we've got a fantastic workforce who've been most most of those who've been with us over 20 years. Um, so it's quite a sort of stable and structured environment. But I think um, it's everybody who visits will say it's full of a lot of potential um and and that's a challenge because you you've got to focus on you know already from what you read out i'm sort of going oh yeah yeah we're doing that we're doing that no oh gosh yes so it's focusing as well 
so that we don't take our eye off what uh, what is our core business and, and farming is our core business and it's finding things that run alongside that that enhance it rather than take it away never ending to-do list uh, you, you mentioned that uh, you obviously took everything back in house so i'm just wondering what drove that decision and, and and what it was like before that in terms of i'm guessing was was it was it tenancy related how did it work yeah there was, there was a number of tenant farmers on the estate as um so many of us are seeing those smaller farming enterprises struggle to work as they would have done in the past um and um when ian returned from agricultural college he was very um, sort of keen to see how our economies of scale would work as well. So by bringing all those back in, we were lucky enough that we've got that um, we've got that sort of portfolio of land that we could we could use, and it really varies. Um, we you know as you mentioned, we've got uh, arable land, but we've also um, got parkland and land that cannot really be used for anything else, and because those the the, the the farms are all you know neighboring each other you understand how that that land that ground works you know where the wet the wet puddles are you know where the drainage is you know all those things so by taking it back in in hand it's something that you already know it's not going to rent somewhere somewhere else or buying a parcel of land somewhere else where you don't know all of the challenges that come with it yeah uh let's talk a little bit about you um so you uh you actually grew up in Shropshire, you're you're from a farming background yourself. Um, you met Ian through young farmers, um, typical way, I suppose, um, for many. Uh, but you also you worked outside of farming um, before uh, you came to Oakley. So I just wondered if you could just tell us briefly about your own life growing up, life before Oakley. So you say yes. I grew up uh, near Newport, not far from Harper Adams Agriculture College, although I didn't go there to study. Um, and to be honest, growing up, I uh, we had from about the age of ten, our farm was arable with potatoes as well there. So I grew up there, working there through the summer months. Um, but really, if I'm honest, wasn't interested in farming at all at that point. Um, uh, you know, mum would say to me whatever you do, don't marry a farmer, you know, that whole <laughs> classic that we all, you know, you go off and you do other things. So um, I studied maths. Uh, I, that's what I enjoyed doing okay. at school. So I went uh, away to university, studied maths, got a maths degree, thought I'd train as an accountant, went uh, into a big corporate as a management accountant trainee, went through the training process, got a little bit disheartened with that. Um, so moved into the marketing role um, and then sort of developed up until probably my early 30s working working in that environment um, then switched when um, I moved over to Ellesmere I decided that the environment that I was working in so I was working as a product manager so buying and selling um, stationary of all things oh, really? and okay. um, working <laughs> in and out of Europe and it was quite it was, a, it was a wonderful job quite demanding but didn't quite work with a farming environment mm. um, and so our lives were sort of going in two different directions so decided to rethink that and came out of that role and then continued with the marketing but looking at property marketing working with local firm of estate agents and um, 
then started a family after we got married. Um, how long was that? 19 years ago. And sort of slowly always wanted to do different things. And as I say, the potential, when anyone comes along, they see the potential that's here. Um, but just sort of uh, had very much family time for those, those first few years, um, looking after doing all the classics, you know, doing all the books, doing all the behind the scenes bits. But it's also a brilliant way of getting to understand a business yeah. and see how it works. So all those skills I've learned before in totally different industries were really handy to bring back in. And then as time's gone on, you look and you see, think, you know, what can I add to this? What value can I add to this business? And it becomes clear as time goes on what, what my passions are for. And even though I thought 30 years ago I was not going to do anything to do with farming, hey, I find out that's what I really like doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's a really good point made, though, as well, coming in from any industry to, to anyone perhaps listening to this who, and there are, quite a lot of people actually get in touch with me who aren't involved in farming at all, looking to how do I get involved in the industry? Look at what your skill set is, because whatever your skill set, what your ever experience is, you will find a place in agriculture somewhere and that will help you. That will help. And then that's the thing, isn't it? So we're sort of in like any farming business, you are everything. You're the accountant, you're the HR officer, you're the marketing person, you're the, yeah. the scientist that's looking after the crops. You are everything. Yeah. Um, and that's the bit that I think perhaps it just takes a little bit of time before you realise that. It's really hard to see that. And I think we sort of take it for granted within the industry that we can do. We have all those skills because it's it's a challenge, isn't it? Juggling all those things. We don't really? always have those those tools in the toolbox. So um, it has been interesting looking at that. And I know there's still loads more loads more to do we're only on the journey so um so yes it's been interesting putting those 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 skills i've learned elsewhere into practice this episode is being supported by our primary sponsor howden rural which is the new name for aplan rural the howden team shares my passion for giving a voice to farmers and we have both driven to raise the profile of farming voices to a wider audience Howden Rural do a lot of work on social media themselves, sharing farming accounts and farming stories. They have a rural community blog which shares farmers' experiences. And they also support a growing number of initiatives that champion UK farmers, including this podcast. So a big thank you to Howden Rural for supporting Meet the Farmers. Let's look back a bit, um, because I mentioned in the intro that uh, Oatley's been in the family for 500 years which i think is probably the the longest we've had for anyone on this podcast um so briefly because i know there's a lot in that can you just give us a brief history of the estate going going back so um i'm learning as i do as I go <laughs> on. so the the same family have been on the same part of uh, on the shores of the mere ellesmere for over 500 years. Um, it's varied in its size. Um, certainly in the last 100 years, it was more than double the size the estate was at that time. Um, it started off with uh, royal connections um, and then has changed through those, those periods of time. In the last 100 years, we see the evidence of, the, of that part of history as well. So it was uh, the Kiniston family um, and I forget the date now, but in the 1800s, there were two daughters and one married a Mannering 
and then hence the Mannering name has has okay. continued along the line. Um, but all the family, all the sort of like my husband and children are all Kiniston Mannerings to keep that that name there. But we only use the Mannering surname, um, and that's continued but evolved quite a lot. So the house that I mentioned before that was taken down in the nineteen uh, late nineteen fifties, early sixties. Um, was built um, early 1800s. So there was a property previous to that, which I believe was burnt down, but that was that was further down from the site where the, the old houses that we're used to seeing. And that property that was built 18, started 1826, was of some size with amazing formal gardens. And we've still got some of those gardens today. And some of the features that we've still got relate to that building, okay. which visitors, when they come along and you mentioned the open gardens, there's 10 acres of gardens still there um, in different forms, amazing trees. Um, a, so a real Victorian um, palace almost in its, in its heyday. Um, mm. certainly isn't like that now <laughs> I've got to be <laughs> honest there is a modern a, a more modern building that was built um, in the 1950s that sits on part of that site and that's sort of the centre um, and that's where our father-in-law lives and that's sort of the centre of the estate now okay. um, so it has changed over years and then in the, uh, the second world war there was um, like a number of places in this part of Shropshire and North Wales there was um, American hospital camp here. So we've got aerial photographs of um, the, a very sizable American hospital camp. And when that went, what it left was a lot of concrete tracks. And we utilize those as part of our farm business now. Oh, so, uh, so we've got fields that we call camp one and camp two, one called the prison ground. So you can imagine what that was used right. for. Um, but this isn't that long ago, really on the scale of history. Um, and so it's evolved, evolved since, you know, since that period of time. And the, the main house did not have the family living in there in 1946. So um, they were living in a neighbouring smaller property and it was used as a convalescent home and as a convent. So the reason it was then taken down because it was falling into disrepair to, to um improve that building would have cost a fortune so now that convent is uh, at the bottom of the drive on the opposite side of the road that runs up to um, the property now so there's still a convent there but no longer obviously up at, up at the house so it's evolved a lot so probably over the last 40 years it stayed very similar and now we're starting to see that those if we don't do something with those buildings that are left that connected to that house, we're going to lose them now. Um, yes. So that's why we've started to do look at different things that we can be doing that run alongside the farm. Right. I see. Um, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm keen to talk about the farming operation, but maybe, maybe let's pause actually on that. Uh, so uh, your, your uh, diversified operations, let, let's call them that, um, and those buildings in particular, are there are there active plans for for refurbishing those for for, for moving them into a, a different use? Yes, yeah, so there's um there's a stable yard that used to be connected to the original big house that was there. Beautiful stable yard um, with cobbles, and but has just been and I'm sure virtually every farm will relate to this. 
they just don't work from an agricultural yeah. point of view anymore. They end up as the dumping ground for things. Yeah, uh, the shed you every farm needs one. In yes, they're there. <laughs> Ours had been sort of because it was it was enclosed as well, so it was nobody saw it. So then, when nobody sees something, hey, just pop that there, or we'll we'll do whatever we whatever we put up there. So um, it was it was really. Um, run down full of a lot of stuff that had uh, been collected over the years and a bit overwhelming to be honest but when we started to look at what we were going to do moving forward we also saw the potential of those buildings they're not too far away from the new modern house that's there so to convert those into residential properties like a lot of places would be then it would be hard to do um because it would be taking away the privacy from from the farm, etc. And how would that work with other people being on farm? And yeah, so we looked at lots of different things that we could do. Um, and then we had COVID lockdown, which meant we'd got a bit of time to do some projects. So we started, we got the children there at the weekends when we went homeschooling and we started to clear and bit by bit. We, I think we removed about 60 tonnes of soil off the cobbles. We cleared out all of the sheds, all of the buildings. And there's an old, it's hard to explain really when you can't see it, but it's an old coach house with beautiful sandstone arches as you go um, into them. And um, we cleared all of those. We removed, we sorted through all the, the years of random things, found some treasures, but mostly found a lot of junk. Um, <laughs> And, and then we had this stable yard, which was empty, um, but looked lovely. So it's sort of like, right, what, what, what are we gonna do with this now? Um, at the same time, people were looking for different activities to do. You know, we had the whole staycation year. Yep. We're gonna stay in the UK, but what are we gonna do with our days? Um, and again, anyone who's visited this part of Shropshire, there's so many amazing walks, so many lovely things to do. But sometimes it's not a full day visit. It yep. needs it needs other things. So we thought, well, let's come inside those. Um, so we started to have um, a monthly market with local businesses. So we're all outside. So again, from a COVID point of view, that was that worked. That's when we opened up again. Well, the whole country opened up again. And um, we also had a garden where people could go and have a walk round. So it sort of started to evolve from that point onwards. And we realised that alongside that, we've been doing, have selling our meat boxes direct. And it was a great way to talk to our customers because they could actually come and they could select what goes into their meat box rather than us say, you've got to have four, shin, four packs of shin of beef and diced beef and minced beef and you know, whereas they'd like, actually, there's only two of us and we don't need that. And so they could put those together. So we were doing that once a month um, alongside, of course, everybody wants a cup of coffee and a piece of cake. And so everything sort of evolved, really, from that point. Um, and now we've had and you mentioned before, we're open once a week. We're at now open two days a week. And we just literally before Christmas had a change of use consent granted on those buildings so that we can open as a farm shop and cafe so we haven't done the work yet we've got to work out exactly how we're going to run that um but we're sort of moving ahead with with those plans as well and that's all sort of evolved over the last few years without us spending 
too much money on it first because you can get yeah. really carried away and then realize you don't actually want to do it yeah. <laughs> don't true. actually like meeting people or don't actually uh yeah don't want people around um but what we have found is we can run it alongside the farm we've we've got a separate slightly separate entrance way in so if we're tb testing the cattle for instance we can still safely do that and we have any visitors in a sort of separate area the sort of two sides to the farm but equally we can be putting uh you know we can put our yeah, we've got a pig run now not so much at the moment because it's so muddy because they made such a mess that they're inside but visitors can come and see the pigs um yeah. which is always a joy and it makes me smile even now when the piglets are running around few few instances of them escaping across the car park which was great of course great entertainment um which people love even more yes <laughs> <laughs> so the one thing i hadn't touched on there as well is part of that diversification and that evolving is and again many farms will relate to this so we're going to sell our meat direct from the farm i've got these beef boxes oh we've sold all of this but there's always 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 some bits of the cow or the pig or the lamb that you don't sell and yep. what you're going to do with it you put them in the freezer and you find them six months later because yep. you're going to use them yourself so we looked at how we how we would use those because you need to use everything it's like you see everything including the oink isn't it you need to it doesn't work unless you can sell the whole beast so we teamed up i happened to meet um a couple who were really interested in local food so we teamed up with them and she she's an amazing cook. And so she produced ready meals from those bits that, you know, if we have excess mints or excess slow cooked or whatever it may be, that people really appreciate a really nice Fantastic. ready meal that is sat in your freezer when you can't be bothered one day to cook, but yeah. you're still having home cooked food. So we've sort of Com combined all those elements and that's sort of the direction of travel that we are in at the moment you've used the words evolve evolution quite a lot there and i think that that's that's quite a big thing to draw out in terms of i think when a lot of farmers think about diversification they perhaps think oh i've got to get all my all my eggs in one basket straight away i've got to think big i've got to think about where this is going in 10 years time but that's, I'm guessing, well, I'm drawing out from what you're saying, that's definitely not the case in the way that you've approached it. If I'm honest, probably five years ago, I thought I should have the business plan with everything on there. Okay. And that's the way you, I think we're encouraged to think. Yeah. However, we, if we'd have gone down that route, we would have done things differently than what we've actually done now. Um, I, it's, it's that case of until you actually do it, you don't know if you want to stand there and talk to people. You know, when you're farming, you're used to not being around people all the time. Do yep. you actually want to talk to people who are going to not always, most people are amazing. And that's been the joy is getting to know a lot of local people who visit us often, normally at least once a week at the moment. And they become, it's almost like a big family now. Um, but you've got to like to do that. And if you're not a person who wants to do that, then if you've suddenly put your big 10-year plan in place and you've gone down that route because you've got an all singing, all dancing, you know, you've invested a lot of money into a new building and staff and refrigerated units and all these things, that would be really tough. So 
perhaps it sits better with us because we're a, probably a little bit more cautious that just by slowly slowly building it's given us um the confidence i suppose to do more and see see where we're going so i would definitely advise doing small steps to begin with particularly if you're changing direction from a traditional farming business to something um that's a little bit different i think that's great advice and also like sort of look yeah think about what you really enjoy what yeah what you think about your skill set but think about what you want to do because mm. ultimately you are probably going to be spending a lot of time certainly in the beginning stages doing this mm. um mm. whatever it is so really think about that uh let's talk about uh, the farming operation um starting with your beef and you have 270 beef short horns in your suckler herd um, and another 50 or so highlands i think um let's let's focus on the breeds first of all uh, because of course they're very different in terms of apart from anything else the amount of time they're going to be on the farm so uh yeah just talk me through your thinking on those the farmers have sucker herd for a number of years there's quite a lot of parkland around um so it lends itself to a grazing animal um the beef um, suckler herd feels has been up until this point probably um, sort of that premium product that we were when I think back 18 years ago probably we were they were store cattle that we would rear we'd sell them off as stores I remember going off to market when first came on the scene probably 24 years ago I think it was 25 years ago going off to cattle uh, going off to market with the cattle um, and so, you, you know, we'd be selling stores, but things changed um, really over that period of time. We have a uh, livestock manager who is really passionate about the breeding of the cattle that we have. And we evolved at that point as well. We, were, we had a limb, well, predominantly limb, sort of commercial limb herd. We've moved away from the limb through to the, the short horn. Um, which takes its time. It's like any anything, you know, uh, and anyone who hasn't got any knowledge about farming, you know, we're talking about uh, animals that we're, we're predominantly selling at two years old now, or certainly our heifers. And that's, you know, that's taken five, six, seven years to get to that point of being able yeah. to. So it takes a long, you know, it's a big move. So again, I suppose that's those small steps, you know, moving away from that limb herd that we had and those stores that we used to have. And then the Highland cattle came along and we had a few almost as pets because you wanted to see them out the window. Yeah, I know that sounds mad from a commercial beef farm point of view, but it is how it was. Um, we started off it's it's how it is with a lot of people before. still. Yeah. Um, and but where we are, we have um, a triple SI um area that runs between anyone who knows again this part of the world right to other mares in the area very wetland at the moment but wetland uh, that we needed to um, graze and manage but the commercial cattle would not work in that environment so we knew that we had to put something in there we had to we had to manage it in some way and we tried various different ways you'd get a contractor in with a cob bite you'd get somebody in topping it it just didn't work but you put right. the right cattle in there and they look after it so we sort of we don't forget them but we do forget them because they just look after certain areas of the farm 
they never the highland cattle never really come into the shed they're all they're grazing outside all year they will graze all sorts from reeds to rushes but they're not afraid of it they're not bothered they're happier if they're out there visitors to us now want to see the highlands so we quite often particularly if we've got an open day we'll move them onto the the site that's closer to where the farm shop and cafe are but they're not always there so at the moment they're they're there on we call it the lower part bit but uh they're not always around and that's because they like we'd call it the rough old ground that nothing you can't do anything else with um and that's how that's evolved um why we have 50 because they're like four years old before they go um and we can't seem to let them go any way unless we're happy with where they're going um and so that has evolved we've uh, got very attached to the a couple of bulls that we've had highland bulls over the time that have become the poster boys and they've been photographed by anyone i think and everyone who's visited the area yeah but from a commercial point of view they're not making us money, but they are looking after something that would have cost us money to manage yeah. the rest and, of the time. And, and like you're saying as well, they have a certain amount of tourism value as well, um, if they're keeping they people do. happy. They do. People like them. Now, on top of that, we also have, um, and we have done for a number of years, had a, um, a, a sort of black and white, as we could call it, herd, where we're buying in Frisian bull beef. And we've been doing that for probably 15 to 20 years. Okay. So, so that's not going through our farm shop, but we've got various enterprises within there, which is how we managed to establish the staff numbers that we've got as well. So we've got four right. members of staff working on the farm. So we are working with Butelar and a number and Blade and a number of the, the contracts so going back to that bit of history, when we had a lot of concrete, we, in the early 90s, before um, Ian returned to the farm, a large bull beef shed was put up, um, which happened to then coincide with BSE crisis, etc. cetera. Um, but because that investment had gone in that shed, we've looked at how we can utilise that asset. Um, and by having that extra sort of beef stream that comes through, where they're housed all year round effectively when they come into us that is why you know we're utilizing that so we've got the the suckler herd that are the sort of what feels right in your heart to have we've got the highlands which look lovely and everybody particularly from a non-farming background love the seeing them but from a commercial point of view we also have um a, we are buying in from three months four months old and selling in their sort of 13-month-old, I think it's the top level that we'll sell on certain contracts. But then we'll have other contracts that we'll graze for a period of time, um, but constantly looking at what's going on in the market. Um, so that that's our bread and butter from a livestock point of view. Um, the farm shop is tiny in comparison with it, but where will we be in 20 years' time? It may be we're on the other it, again how it's going to evolve meet the farmers is brought to you by rural pod media the only podcast production agency to specialize in the rural sector we're on a mission to make rural stories mainstream and help businesses organizations and communities like you 
tell your story through podcasting. Podcasting is a fantastic way of connecting with your audience, whoever that might be, getting your message out there and networking with leaders in your niche. Rural Pod Media can help you by launching your new podcast or helping you with the technical side. We also provide podcast training and an audit service if you already have a podcast you're not sure where to take it to next. For more information or to book a call, visit ruralpodmedia.co.uk. That's ruralpodmedia.co.uk. Uh, Shropshire, of course, is is well known as being uh, fairly fairly prone, let's say that, to TB. Um, what's the situation with you on the ground at the moment? So for us at this exact moment in time, we're currently on six months testing. But because we've got quite a high headage count, it's quite an operation when we are testing. We were, I'm just trying to think how long the, the months go, don't they? I think we've been a couple of years free of TB now, but we were, we did have a problem um, a few years ago. Then we've had a period, long period of time and then we had a problem before. So um, it is it is a challenge. A lot of the farms around us have struggled as well. It, it's it's yeah it's difficult like the rest of the industries and again where does where does it go what happens in the future it, it's difficult um, but at this moment in time we've got two weeks I think now before our next TB test which takes two and a half yeah. weeks for us to do it's it's not easy. <laughs> uh, what about uh, the sheep and the pigs? Um, yeah, uh, those operations bit. They're very much little add-on if we're honest. Yeah. Um, most of that meat will go through the farm shop, some we sell. The sheep, we've got, I think, about 80 ewes at the moment. And they they sort of look after those extra bits of ground that the highlands don't look after or that you know, we've got little, like, everywhere. They've got little pockets of grazing land that suit sheep. That don't like they're a management tool. Yes. Yeah. Um, so sometimes they can be a little bit of a hassle, but equally sometimes they can be quite handy. Um, and the pigs is a little bit of a passion that both Chris, who's the livestock manager, and I discussed some time ago. And so when I was growing up, we had pigs at home up until about the age of eight or nine. And I was always promised a pig when okay. I'm older, you know, that conversation. And I <laughs> hate to say I was sat in the pigsty with the pigs, loved the pigs, and the pigs went. Um and so I really fancied some pigs. So we got two saddleback pigs and then it's sort of grown from there. Hey. <laughs> um, so now we have a boar and four um, sows and they are predominantly outdoor reared. Um, they make a mess, but they look after that. They're, they're in some woodland at the moment. The, the boar and the sows are clearing a bit of woodland. So again, a bit of management tool runs alongside you know what we're doing but they're not our commercial part of our farming business but almost all of their meat goes through our farm shop as bacon sausages and people genuinely you know really love to know where their food comes from occasionally you'll get somebody who says i can't possibly because i've just seen them on the other part of the farm but most of the time people genuinely uh, are interested in seeing how they're they're raised and and where they are where they are um and they're just a joy apart from when they escape then they're no joy at all <laughs> <laughs> yeah some words that probably can't be used on this podcast i'm guessing yes yeah. <laughs> let's uh, let's turn to the future and you sort of insinuated a little bit to this through the interview but um 
what does the future of the estate look like? I suppose I suppose I'm asking this in the context of all the general challenges um, that the farming, that the land sector is facing at the moment. It's really difficult, isn't it, to have a crystal ball and know, um, which would be great to know exactly where where we are, where we're going to be in 20 years time. Um, we're really lucky in the fact that we haven't got all our eggs in one basket. I feel that the the more the more we can communicate with the outside world, the better. The more we can talk about farming, like real farming, but equally connect with with people so that they they see that it isn't just an alien world where we're it, it, it's it's for people to understand where their food comes from. But equally, will we will we be food producers at the level we are at the moment? You know, what's happening with food security? There's so many big issues. And I think sometimes we've we fall foul of trying to solve all the problems. Um, we're trying to, you know, both Ian and I are very much um, focused. We're, we're used to being food producers. That's what we do. Um, but will we be doing that in the future? I don't know. Um we'll have to continue to manage it and see that it works, you know, make sure it works. Uh, there'll always going to be an element here because we've got parkland that we will have to graze anim animals in some form. Um, whether it will be on the commercial level we're doing at the moment, I don't know. Um, we've looked at our carbon footprint of the cattle across the board from the highlands through to the short, uh, the short horn circlers through to the sort of, um, faster finished cattle and actually from a carbon footprint point of view the faster finished cattle come out better even though it feels wrong yeah. you know if, yeah. from an environmental point of view there's loads of questions I think as an industry we're only at the beginning of that but for where it sits for Oatly I think if we can be that sort of stepping stone between farming and the outside world it fits in with where we sit, our infrastructure, how we utilise Oatly to look after it, to look after the buildings that have been left here, the garden that's been left here, um, the estate so that it has a future. We've got to evolve. We've got to evolve with it. So um, I don't have all the answers at this moment in time. I don't think any of us do. You know, every no. year is different, isn't it, at the moment? we've, uh, And I think we're hungry um hungry to know what and talk to others to hear what everybody else is thinking everyone's thinking how things will move forward but if we can educate and communicate the outside world to the, the benefits of buying british food even if it's on our small little scale that we're in it's got to help it's got to it's it's got to make a difference I used to chat to people and their parents or their grandparents were farmers. We're now another generation down the line removed. It, uh, yeah, that's that's difficult when you're passionate about something that you feel is you know the right way forward, but not necessarily the whole world or the whole country might be feeling the same way. So the more we can all follow podcasts where we whatever we can do to get our voices out there and communicate with everybody, the better. Brilliant. So, Claire, yeah. Claire, that is music to my ears. Yeah, we need, <laughs> we need, we need, we need everyone to be thinking along those lines because it is, it's the only way that it's going to work, really. It really um, is. It really is. And I'm lucky enough from a, a future point of view from Oatly, um, 
our daughter's 16 now and she has been working at the weekends with us in the farm shop and I now see that communication going on from another generation they're growing up seeing what you know whatever they end up doing whether they end up staying to farm in the same way we are or um in a different way that communication line is there so I think that's that's our biggest the biggest thing we can do is just keep keep communicating keep trying to be positive sometimes it's hard isn't it when the rain's coming down and the oh yes you know whatever it may be that's going on but um I think once we lose that then it then it's hard but I think we've just got to keep keep beating the drum yeah <laughs> that does draw me on to uh, the last thing I want to talk to you about actually and, and that is succession and I'm also very conscious that your kids are probably going to be listening to this so <laughs> there is absolutely no pressure either either way just saying but I suppose for you as well, 500 years of history, um, do you and Ian ever sort of like feel the pressure of the ancestors in, in that sort of need to pass the estate on in a good way? How does that How does that sort of feel? I th- well, I think both of us, if you have both of us talking on here as well at the same time, I think I can speak for both of us, is, uh, is trying not to make it a burden. So it's a yeah. pleasure rather than a burden. And sometimes there is that pressure. Um, because you do feel you're just a tiny cog in a in something much larger, but it's it's never really yours. It's you're just the custodians of it, like so many farming families feel. Um, you can just I just hope at the time that we're not there, we can look back and go, actually, we moved it from A to B. We kept whatever challenges came along in our way. Um, and that then there is something that can continue down the generations and whether they farm. And that's the thing, I suppose, from our point of view, if we're a reasonable size, then you perhaps don't necessarily need to farm in the way we are. But that's what our passion is and what we enjoy doing. But if we can look after it so that there is something that continues along those lines, that that area is still together as best as we can manage it. Um, then then we've done our job and it is that is just we're just custodians of it really um and looking at after it for well not just for the future generations but for the the sort of whole community of you know people that have either worked here or been here as part of that american hospital camp or whatever it may be it means so much to so many people that it's it's yes our family but equally everybody around us it's part of a of a, of a community that it's important and we have a responsibility to look after it in that way and then succession going forwards and succession is famously um a subject that we are terrible at to be honest mm-hmm. as, as an industry and even talking about let alone engaging with um just and you can obviously give me as, as much or as little as you want on this but what would your advice be i suppose for good succession planning i think um the more you can talk as a family, the more you can be open and honest about the plans moving forward, the better it is for whether it's your children or, well, you know, it's either going up or down, isn't it? And how you see those. Um, the sooner you can plan on those, the easier, the easier it is. Our children in their teenage years are aware of what you know, our thoughts and plans are for that. So they realise, but equally so that they don't feel the burden by it. You know, I have so many friends or probably more the generation 
above us that that felt the pressure to be or stay at home and work and is even just talking today I'm sure this business benefits from when we've worked elsewhere and we've come back and so many other businesses so you can't you know this experience whatever you you know decide to do it's you you pick those bits that you enjoy doing but but you've got the skill set from potentially somewhere else so it is hard there's no I don't think there's 10 year you know you can have a 10 year plan and stick to it it just doesn't you can have a plan but it just might move it just needs looking at every year um it's always good to have a plan but it doesn't necessarily mean you have to it's set in stone and you have to do that um that's great and I I think farmers are quite resilient like that as well we're always having to adapt to whatever challenge there is that's coming our way so um it it's it's good just as long as there's communication there um that's that's the most important thing i think just a little more about our primary sponsor howden rural which is the new name for a plan rural same people different name howden rural provide bespoke insurance cover for farms and estates this could be for anything from tractors and machinery to a new exciting diversification venture so for more information visit howdeninsurance.co.uk forward slash rural uh we're gonna have to start to draw this to a close because time is against us so i'm going to move on to the quick questions were a bit of fun uh the first is claire what is your all-time favorite song now i'm really struggling on this i mean everyone does do i do, I do a farming all-time <laughs> favorite song you know put some combine harvesters in there get some, or something get some in or something yeah i know and then i was thinking back to my young farmer days you know what was the the, the song at the high host silver lining at the end of an evening that we used okay. to uh dance. and so i am and i yeah as soon as i uh realized you were going to be answer, asking me that question i was like oh my goodness i don't know <laughs> I don't That's know. Fine. I find it. It's probably something from the eighties, knowing me. <laughs> yeah. okay. we'll, we'll we'll pass on that one. What about a, a book to recommend? So anyone who knows me will know that I'm always buying a book, and it's always going to be the next best thing. Okay. And it's like a self help book or something that I okay. I have. There's always one by the bed that uh, I'm reading, and I get through the first three or four chapters, and then it sort of collects a bit of dust, and then goes on a bookshelf, <laughs> and I've and got a book. And I think I've passed it on to my daughter and she's book mad too. Um, and again, singling out one book. I mean, there's so many, aren't there? There's so many where you can pick yeah. certain gems from. Maybe, maybe, a, maybe, maybe a recent one. What have you been reading recently that, that you've really I've liked? I've read Julia Bradbury's Walking for Health. I listened oh, to okay. Julia. We're really lucky in this part of the world is that we've got an independent bookshop that um, invite people along to launch their book so I've listened to had an evening with Julia Bradbury or Louise Minchin or you know I love that's a bit of escapism from uh, yeah. you know some, something that's a self-help but um, certainly I think going out for a walk even if you can go out for 10 minutes or 15 minutes every day and just take in what's around you and we're lucky that we live where we live um, I would I would say that's a I thoroughly enjoyed reading that and taking that little gem with me. That's a really nice point. Shout out for Julia there. 
Yeah. Um, and we'll now move on to the final question, which we ask everyone who comes on the show. Uh, the first is Claire. If you could give a message to the public, any message, what would it be? Oh, please buy British food and trust British farmers. It's 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 sort of cut me in half to be running through the middle. Um, I just don't think there is any food producer. And I know I'm totally biased. But um, if we could just be self-sufficient in food in the UK, people would buy local seasonal food. It would solve so many issues. Um, so I'd just say stick, you know, it might seem old fashioned, it might seem, but let's, let's eat food at the right time of the year. We can grow amazing things in the UK. So just, you know, look for anything that's British. And uh, your message for farmers? Oh, to stay strong, get get some good thick wellies at the moment, <laughs> um, or some waders. Oh gosh, it is it is it's been a challenge, hasn't it? And each time you yep. think it's going to stop, and it doesn't. I mean, if you say no percent chance of rain, and it rains. I think that I suppose there's two sort of I I see two I see those that have been in the industry for a long period of time have continued to do the same thing and. We've just got to keep watching what we do because it evolves. Don't think just because that's what we've always done. That's the way forward. I think we should, again, work together, communicate with each other because we're all trying to do the same thing fundamentally. And the more we can work together and communicate to the outside world, the easier it's going to be because effectively we're all loads of little businesses all trying to do the same. So, so let's, I know we're as an industry renowned for going, no, I'm not going to tell them how I'm doing (laughs) until I've seen their combine out or whatever it may be. But um, I think the more we can, we can communicate together and stick together, the better um, as a farming industry, because it is unique. It is a very special place. Yeah, great. More communication, more collaboration. Mm. And finally, uh, your recommendation for a blog, podcast or social media account to follow, oh, which can be farming or non-farming. Well, obviously yours. Oh, very <laughs> <the> much. <laughs> um, very kind. Um, do you know, I'm a bit... Um, I'm a bit of a dinosaur when it comes to I've not really got into into podcasts as much probably just haven't had enough time to between the walking and the uh, all the yeah. other bits I haven't had yeah. I haven't had enough time but do you think it's important we keep abreast of what's going on and the, the feel and the mood that's out there even though some of them really make your blood boil I do think it's important that we keep abreast of what what's going on in the world and yeah the feeling from general public um i i do i suppose gareth win jones is one of my uh i do enjoy having listening to a gareth rant occasionally um and he's probably been the one that i've yeah followed the most great shout out to gareth there uh that's it we'll leave it there claire thank you so much for doing this i've i've really enjoyed um listening about i mean my goodness what a business what a what a history but also a business that is that is very much engaging with the forefront of all the issues today and um yeah thank you for giving us your unique insight thanks for coming on the show thank you very much for having me
absolutely my pleasure that is it for today uh yeah big thanks to my guest claire mannering for coming on the show thank you also for listening um and to our primary podcast sponsor howden rural insurance uh thanks to them for supporting the show um any extra information you need um including uh, uh any links there are in the show notes uh check those out and i will be back with you next week um but for now i'm ben eagle this has been meet the farmers thank you very much for listening and i hope you'll have a great week <laughs>